I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5, 1 through 12, if you'd like to turn there. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Heather. Good morning. My name is Rachel, and I am one of the ministers here. I get to work with our college students at the table. And I have to be honest with you, first service, this has been a fun day. Uh, First service, I dropped the mic, and I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm telling you what happened, because I stood up, and the mic literally fell off of my head. And in, in place of that, there was a lot of help Um, So I salute all the people who helped me. Um, But we had an impromptu greeting time. And so to be fair, I wanted to tell you what happened. And I also want to give you guys a bit of a greeting time. So go ahead and stand up and greet one another. Pretend like I don't have a mic on. took much longer than that to put the mic back together, but we did it. So you got a shortened version. I just want to be honest and upfront about what happened in first service, but we're here and we're going to open the word of God together. So first, I have a question for you. I'm not the first to ask this question, but what is the secret to happiness? What does it mean for humans as a society and as individuals to flourish? What is the good life, if you will? Many people over the course of all of human history have asked this question and weighed in with their opinions. Kings, politicians, authors, teachers, parents, marketers, and also, apparently, the makers of board games. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this game here, the game of life. This version is a little bit shinier than the one that was in my house that I grew up playing, Um, but I would play this game often with my siblings. And if you've never played this game or you're not super familiar or it's been, I don't know, 10 plus years since you've played the game of life, let me jog your memory. 
The premise of the game is that we get to make choices. So you start out and you can choose, do I want to enter the workforce or do I want to go to college? A choice that all of you guys are making. You get to choose one or the other. From there you get to choose, do I want to get married or not? Yes or no? Do I want to have kids or not? Do I want to buy a car? Do I want to rent? Do I want to buy? If I'm going to buy, what kind of house am I going to buy? Do I want insurance? That's a tricky one. I had no idea what that was when I was 10. I was like, yes? I don't know. Right? So the game is made up of all of these different choices. And the objective, the way that you win the game, is by finishing with the most money and retiring in country acres. Right? That was always like, if I win, it's like country acres. That's right, brothers. That's right, sisters. I'm retiring in country acres. When I was 10, I was really proud of retiring in country acres, retiring with the most money. That is the objective of the game. And as I was kind of going back and looking at the game of life, I came across an article, and the title of it was 14 Tips and Tricks to Win the Game of Life. And my first thought was, where was this when I was 10? Because I lost so many games. This would have been really helpful to have. Um, so I decided to read through it naturally for when that comes up again. And here are some of the tips and tricks. I thought these were a little bit humorous. Here's the first one that they said. Understand the objective. Very important. The objective is to finish with the most money. Here's the second one. Enforce the rules so that people don't cheat. I was like, well... I was doing that. Little legalist Rachel, 10 years old, she was making sure nobody was cheating in the game of life, and heaven forbid, Monopoly. If you were a banker, my eye was on you. I was doing that. This third one surprised me a little bit. Be sneaky. Encourage others to make bad choices to lower their chances of beating you. That one did come naturally as a 10-year-old. It did. Here's another one. It is not worth buying car insurance because it costs almost as much as the car accident tiles. I don't know about the wisdom of that, but that's what they suggested. Here's another one. Have good morals throughout the game as those are rewarded. Okay, I don't know how that coincides with being sneaky, but... And here's the last one. This one sounded to me like personal experience. Do not take the lottery tile. It could lead to your downfall. Not just to losing, to your downfall. This person was serious. I think they took the lottery tile. Um, these rules or these tips and tricks about the game of life are mostly funny to me um, because I don't play the game of life very often. And I mean, that's free if you guys are going to play the game of life soon. But I think it's also insightful because the game of life is a bit of a commentary on how our culture... And if we're honest, how you and I often approach life. When we ask, what is the good life? We're not just asking hypothetically or theoretically, like some thought exercise. What we're really asking is, what is the best way to live in order to experience the good life? And that is a question of wisdom. Because wisdom is a practical reflection, practical ideas about the best way to live in the world in order to thrive. And it's this question of wisdom, what is the good life and how do we experience it, that our text deals with. 
And it's a little bit surprising, like Jim said, to find a text like this in Matthew, having to do with wisdom. Uh, So let's take a closer look. I'll see if I can convince you. So the section Heather read for us today is the section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is often referred to as the Beatitudes. I had no idea what that name came from, so here is where it's from. The Latin word for blessed is betis, so we get betis, beatitudes. But the original word is in Greek, and that word is makarios. So that word shows up in our Bible as blessed. So we have makarios in Greek, betis in Latin, blessed translated in English. And because of the makarios at the beginning, makarios are the, blessed are the, fill in the blank, these statements that Jesus gives us are makarios statements, sometimes called macarisms. You're like, this is really helpful, a language lesson. This is important, though, because this is what a macarism is. A macarism is a statement about a way of being in the world. It describes happiness or flourishing to a particular person or state of being in the world. Essentially, a macroism, these statements we see in the Beatitudes are wisdom statements. They describe the good life. They answer our questions about the good life with descriptions about the best way to live in order to flourish. So when we see this word translated as blessed in our translations, it's actually probably not the most helpful translation. Makarios, as it's describing human flourishing, a better translation would be flourishing. So flourishing are the pure in heart. Flourishing, all these different things. And that helps us understand why this is wisdom literature. So in the, in the Beatitudes, we see eight of these macrisms, eight of these wisdom statements. This is Jesus' description of human flourishing, of the good life. So what is Jesus' answer? What is Jesus' definition of the good life? Look at these with that translation as flourishing instead of blessed and see if this gives us some insight. Pay special attention to those Jesus says are flourishing. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are the humble. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Flourishing are the merciful. Flourishing are the pure in heart. Flourishing are the peacemakers. Flourishing are the ones persecuted because of righteousness. And flourishing are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Jesus describes the good life in terms of virtue. And Jesus is not the first, nor will he be the last, to describe the good life, life as we were intended to experience it, as one of virtue. Think about philosophers like Aristotle, people like Gandhi, who have said to, to experience life the best way is to be a good person, to be a moral person. But the specific virtues that Jesus identifies as defining the good life is the wild part. 
Because Jesus defines the good life with virtues of dependence or need. Look at these again. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means somebody who is experiencing a spiritual lack. They need something from God. They need purpose or truth or comfort or encouragement. They're experiencing a lack. They need something. Flourishing are those who mourn, those who experience loss or grief. They need restoration. They need comfort. They need something. Flourishing are the humble. This is not just those who have humility, but this is actually speaking about a lowliness of status, whether that is socioeconomically or in the eyes of others, those who experience poverty, they need something. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the Old Testament, righteousness is understood as God's right rule and reign. Something that probably makes more sense to us as God's justice. Ruling as things should be. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, righteousness need justice to be served. They're experiencing a gap, waiting for God's right rule and reign. Flourishing are the merciful, those who give of themselves sacrificially. And so, in turn, they have their own needs that then must be met. Flourishing are the pure in heart, those whose devotion is singularly to the Lord, They are putting all of their chips on the table, putting all their bets on Jesus being worthy of their life. They need him to be the true king. Flourishing are the peacemakers, those who experience conflict and are risking making peace. Maybe they need forgiveness from someone else or they need to extend forgiveness and they need vindication for their right actions. They need something. And lastly, flourishing are those persecuted for righteousness, those who experience wrong treatment because of their commitment to obey God. They need justice to be served. Jesus defines the good life as one of dependence and need, but our culture, and you and I often, think of the good life as one without need. Think about our own context. The American dream is one of individuals pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, by their own hard work and intentionality and planning to achieve more than they did, more than their parents did, to achieve more wealth, achieve more relational capital, to eliminate need through finances or security. The American and Western and worldly vision of the good life is one where the virtue of independence is king. The things that we would most likely include in our description of the good life do not appear in Jesus' description. A dream job, a dream house, a good marriage, kids that love you and are mostly obedient, Cool vacations, the absence of conflict, a level of certainty, 
and security, financially, health and fitness, a home, a reputation and education, all of those things are conspicuously absent from Jesus' description of the good life. So if Jesus' vision of the good life runs so counter to what our culture says and what comes naturally to us, it begs the question, how can we trust that this is actually the best way to live? How can we trust Jesus' description of the good life? We can trust that this vision of the good life, of human flourishing, is true because Jesus' life and identity prove it to us. When we look at who Jesus is, when we look at his life, we see the virtues of the Beatitudes personified. We see Jesus modeling most fully these virtues that he speaks about in the Beatitudes. Just think about Jesus' life. Think about his birth. In Jesus' birth, the second member of the Godhead, the Son, put on flesh to become a man. Fully man, fully God. And yet, not only did he become a man, he became a baby. The Son of God became a baby. The youngest baby I have ever held was seven days old. I'm not a mom, and I was honestly questioning the mom's decision-making when she handed me that seven-day-old baby. She put that sweet little baby in my arms, and my heart was pounding so fast. I was like, I have to sit down. I have to sit down with this baby. I sat down on the couch because this was my honest thought. It's a little morbid. I am the only thing between this baby and death. (laughs) That was my thought. My thought was, if I don't, if I drop this, this is, this baby is completely dependent on me to keep it safe, to take care of it. And the Son of Man became a baby, completely dependent on others. We see that Jesus mourned. He mourned over the brokenness of the world, over the brokenness of Jerusalem. He mourned over the loss of his friend Lazarus. We see that Jesus wept and experienced grief. Jesus was humble. Not just that he had humility, that's for sure, but Jesus was a poor rural craftsman from a backwater town called Nazareth that they said nothing good can ever come out of. For most of his life, Jesus worked long hours of physical labor. He associated with fishermen. He had no education. He had no title, no respect from the Pharisees or the elite in society. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He saw up close the body-breaking diseases of leprosy, of unexplained internal bleeding for years, of paralysis, of blindness. Jesus experienced and witnessed the oppression of the Roman Empire, and he longed for the day that all that would be set right. Jesus was merciful. He met people in some of their most vulnerable moments, in the mess of their lives. Women accused of adultery, a Samaritan 
ostracized by the Jews. Men sent outside the city because of their diseases, and Jesus meets them in their mess, and he heals them, and he acts in compassion. And lastly, of course, Jesus was persecuted for righteousness. Jesus was slandered, he was falsely accused, wrongfully tried, he was spat on, he was whipped, and ultimately he went to a cross to be murdered because of his commitment to obey God and speak the truth. Jesus even describes his own life as one of dependence on God. In John 5:19, Jesus replied, "Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things." And in John 12:49, "For I have not spoken on my own, but the father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life." So the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus models the virtues of the Beatitudes. Most people would probably agree with me on that. But where the large majority of the world would start to differ is when Jesus takes it a step further and says, not only am I modeling the good life for you, but actually life, the good life, is only found in me. I have life, and only I have life. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus replied to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And in John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus claims that the good life is found only in him and he models that life for us that he describes in the Beatitudes. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us living 2,000 plus years later? One commentator puts it this way. Implicit in any proclamation about what it means to flourish, the Beatitudes, is an invitation for hearers to reorient their thinking and sensibilities about what it means to thrive and live fully. In Jesus' life and in Jesus' identity and in his description of the good life in the Beatitudes, Jesus invites us to reorient our lives to experience the good life. So how do you and I experience the good life? We can only experience the good life through dependence on Jesus. I want you to turn to Matthew 16 if you have a Bible. Just a little bit further on in Matthew's gospel. I want you to listen how Jesus challenges us to experience the good life through depending on him. 
Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus says, I have life. Come to me, follow me, I have life. I want you to think back to that game of life that we talked about. A lot of people have this, and one of the families on staff, I won't say who it is, because it's funnier if I tell you that it's Scott's family, um, has one of these, but theirs has some edits to it. So I think we have a picture of this. Um, is this not the most like pastor thing you've ever seen? The game of lies. Some edits have been made, as you can see in Sharpie, I assure you it's not just on the front, but anywhere on this box that it says the game of life, edits have been made. Um, in the fine print, on the sides, on the bottom, it's everywhere. So that it says the game of lies. I saw this the other day, I thought it was really funny. Um, but I also think that it's pretty insightful. And I think that Jesus in this text in Matthew 16 offers a similar challenge to how you and I and our culture sees the good life. Jesus challenges us when he says, follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. He challenges us to reject the worldly vision of the good life that you and I often buy into. It's easy for us to think about our lives the same way that we would play the game of life. If I can just get in to the best college and get really good grades and then some clubs and also work to do, get a good resume and then I can get the dream job and then hopefully get married and then hopefully have kids, be able to have a dream house and go on cool vacations or do a health and fitness program to look like her or look like him. We think that if we can control our life's decisions, then we'll come out on top in the game of life will win. <clears throat> I know I'm guilty of this. I have an achiever personality, which leads to the unfortunate trait that there, is, there are few things that I come to in my life that I do not think, yeah, that's tough, but if I had a solid to-do list, okay, I could do that. I think I could handle it. I think if I just managed my time a little bit more and I cut back on this and I did a little more of this, I think I could do that. I think sometimes if I could just make all the right moral choices, if I can do all the right things for God, maybe he'll keep bad things from happening to me. Maybe I'll mostly get through life unscathed if I just make the right choices. But Jesus comes to me and to you and he says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Reject that worldly vision of the good life that puts you and I in the driver's seat of our lives, hoping that we can manipulate our life 
so that we can experience the good life. But Jesus says, if you do that, if you try to find another way to the good life without me, you'll end up losing your soul. The very thing you desire to cultivate and experience the good life, you'll end up sacrificing on the altar of control and independence. When Jesus says, take up your cross, it means that we cannot follow Jesus and experience the good life without dying to ourselves. There is no way that we can come to the Beatitudes or any other part of Jesus' teaching or the Bible and say, that is really good advice about being humble. I'll take that. That is really good. I do need to hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. I'll take that. That is good advice about being merciful. That is, that's got to help me, right, on the way to the good life. There is no way in which we can take what Jesus says about the good life and just try hard. We cannot experience the good life because of our own best efforts. There are no shortcuts with wisdom. There is no hack to the good life. One of my favorite authors, Tish Harrison Warren, says it like this, God promises us simply himself. He refuses to be an end to any other means. This is what Jesus tells us so plainly in the Beatitudes and in Matthew 16. That there is no good life without following Jesus. And there is no following Jesus without following him to a cross. We cannot have the good life outside of following Jesus. You'll lose your soul. But we cannot follow Jesus without following him to a cross. So if the good life is only found in dependence on Jesus, how do we do that? How do we depend on Jesus? I want to give you just four simple takeaways, and none of these are probably profound, and none are ones that I came up with. This is just how the Bible describes a life of dependence on Jesus. The first thing we must do to depend on Jesus is to put our faith in Jesus. We must believe who Jesus said he was and the work that he did. Jesus claimed to be the son. He claimed to be God incarnate. And he came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he went to a cross to pay for our sin and our rebellion and every time we have reached out for control in our lives. And on the third day, he rose again, defeating sin and death for all of time. And he now offers and extends an invitation of salvation, of eternal life for you and I, for all who would put their faith in Jesus. He offers his Holy Spirit to transform us into the type of people, into the, the people who seek God who become more and more like Jesus. To be dependent on Jesus is to put our faith 
and who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. The second thing we must do to depend on Jesus is that we must obey Jesus' teaching. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, I know I've been in Matthew a lot. I've really come to love it. This is one of my favorite texts. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. That should sound familiar. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me, put your faith in me, and I will give you life. I will give you rest. And then what does he say? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I did not grow up on a farm, but Google says that yokes are for working. And apparently you put them on the backs of cows and horses and it keeps them in line. It keeps them from deviating. It instructs them on the right way to go. So when Jesus says, my yoke is light, he's saying, come to me, I have life and I will instruct you on how to live. In John 14, 15, he says it rather simply, if you love me, you will keep my commands. To be dependent on Jesus is to obey what he says, to come to the word of God and to submit our lives to be changed in every area of our life, not just what we do here or how often we read our Bibles, but in the way we operate in our families, with our kids, with our siblings, in our marriages, the way we spend our money, the way we operate in the workplace, that we would submit our lives to be changed under Jesus' teaching and the word of God. To be dependent on Jesus is to obey what he says. The third thing we must do to depend on Jesus is to commit to life in Jesus' family. When we do number one, when we put our faith in Jesus, you and I are adopted into a family of brothers and sisters. And our call is not just to be passive members of the body. It is to be actively engaged. We must open up our lives to each other. We have to serve each other and serve alongside each other to invest in each other's lives, to know one another, to encourage, to comfort, to confess sin, to offer forgiveness. Galatians 6.2 says, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to carry each other's burdens, and the inverse truth of that is that we are called to let others carry our burdens. We are called to commit to life in Jesus' family. The final thing we must do to be dependent on Jesus is to endure until Jesus returns. The promise of the Beatitudes is that as we are faithfully depending on Jesus now, our reward is coming. That when Jesus returns, all will be set right, and all of our struggle to be faithful now will be worth it. In 
In Revelation, John speaks about the one who conquers. He's speaking about those followers of Jesus who have been obedient to Jesus until the end of their lives. And they are the ones who conquer because they are the ones who endure in faithfulness. In our lives, there will be many different seasons. There will be seasons of life where everything is going great. You get into the right college, you get into the right program, you make good grades, you get promoted at your job, your marriage is doing great, you're rolling sixes at the game of life. And then there will be seasons where things aren't necessarily great, but they're not necessarily bad. They're just ordinary, like we just get up and we make breakfast and we go to work and it's fine, but then we come back and we have to do all these things with the kids and it's just, it's monotonous and it's ordinary. And then we will experience seasons of our lives that are dark and hard, where we experience suffering or sickness or loss or death, where we experience anxiety or depression or conflict. And the only way that we can endure through these seasons of life is through depending on Jesus. And to be dependent on Jesus is to put your faith in him, to obey him, to commit to life in his family, and to endure until he returns. The wisdom of the Beatitudes from Jesus is that you and I can only experience the good life through dependence on Jesus and on Jesus alone. We will turn now to communion, which I know several of you need to go get, so feel free. Go get your communion. We re it's refilled. We'll take some time.